Welcome, one and all, to a very special episode of Dice Company. Each of the players has produced a special chapter directly linked to their character's backstory. Dave, why don't you tell us what we're in store for? This is a short story about Benny's arrival in Lunadyne. It begins to explain some of the circumstances that led to him being in Vander's warehouse at the start of the overall Dice Company adventure. Awesome. Let's crack on with A Long Way From Home, Chapter 1. Benny never quite works out exactly where Lunadine starts. He's walking down the rough track when he sees a tangle of shacks spread out along the side of the road. And as he walks, the spaces between the shacks get gradually smaller. And then some of the shacks are houses. And then there are other streets behind the houses on the main road. And then there are more and more people around. And then there are tall buildings everywhere. And he's unquestionably in the city. But there was never a line or a sign or anything at all, actually, to mark that here, traveller, here, you have reached the centre of the empire, the shining jewel in Alphonse's crown. It's frustrating, because on the road in, he had promised himself a fresh start when he arrived in Lunadine, and he had wanted to know exactly when that fresh start was going to begin, as if, snake-like, he was going to shed an old unwanted layer of skin at his exact point of arrival. Still, He's here now, so his fresh start must have begun, and so he tries to maintain an optimistic disposition. Therefore, he has to try to suppress his initial impression, that if this is the jewel in the crown, it's a pretty tarnished jewel, and from his travels through Alphon on the way here, the crown itself might just be costume jewellery. The streets of the capital are narrow, with ramshackle houses jostling for spaces at the edge, in a way that reminds him of teeth in an overfull mouth, maybe of an old acquaintance who couldn't afford dentistry. People hurry past with their heads down, avoiding eye contact. When it starts to rain, which it does a few hours after his arrival, the road quickly turns to a muddy chaos, and Benny heaves himself beneath the eaves of the nearest building to try to stay dry and assess his next move. He does a mental inventory of his assets. This does not take long. He has the clothes on his back and the tools of his trade and a few silver coins in his purse. He has no intangibles, no friends in the city, no contacts, He doesn't know his way around these streets and is unfamiliar with the patchwork of neighbourhoods. Night is drawing in. The rain is getting heavier. Benny allows himself to sink down to his haunches. He tries to hang on to that sense of a fresh start that he'd promised himself, but already he can feel it sliding away, slipping into the water that is running in the gutters and merging with the mud. He just needed one thing, he thinks. Just one thing to give him a bit of optimism. If the sun had been shining when he arrived or his route had taken him through one of the historic quarters he's heard about, that people say are full of fading magnificence. Even, perhaps, if one of the old washerwomen he ran across had given him a good-natured smile, instead of pushing past him, without even acknowledging his existence. Perhaps then, he could feel a tinge of optimism. But instead, unquestionably and overwhelmingly, Benny is feeling sorry for himself. He picks himself up, and tries to find somewhere dry to sleep and maybe a bite to eat with the little silver that he's carrying. Eventually, he manages to find a place. Down by the river, there are a series of warehouses for the storage of the goods that are unloaded by boats that dock there. At the end of the row, one of the warehouses has been abandoned and allowed to become derelict. He spots it from a distance. Like him, it looks sorry for itself. 
When he gets there, he discovers that the roof leaks, and he can hear the rats scuttling around, but he's able to stay dry at least, and nobody else seems to have thought to make a home here. However, he dare not start a fire, for fear of drawing the curiosity of the automaton guards patrolling the premises nearby. At night, he pulls his cloak around himself tightly and tries to rest. His sleep is patchy, and he keeps bobbing up to the surface of consciousness, but when he does dip down below and dream, he dreams he's back in Middleton. He can taste the acrid tang in the air from the furnaces, and see the fine haze of smoke that obscures the sun, even on the brightest of days. He wakes, chilled to the bone, amazed by the idea that he might be feeling nostalgic for his hometown. By the third day, Benny's hatred of the capital has solidified. It's something that sits in his otherwise empty stomach. He hates the grand squares, with their verdant lawns behind lock gates to keep the likes of him out. And he hates the squalid slums that seem designed to keep the likes of him in, and pushing each other down rather than helping each other up. He'd be prepared to admit, if pushed, that some of the buildings are very fine, and that there is something peaceful about sitting on the bench overlooking the river that bisects the city. But he won't be pushed. In three days in this place, not a single person has expressed an interest in his well-being, his opinions, or anything else about him. He starts to make a game of the capital's unfriendliness. He takes to walking down the street, trying to catch people's eyes. He smiles at them in a friendly way, or nods his head to them in greeting. Sometimes he winks, ostentatiously. He keeps a tally of the number of people who acknowledge him, versus those that don't. He finds that it's about five to one, in favour of those that don't. Also by the third day, he's run out of money completely, and realises he might need to make some kind of plan. His dash from Middleton, and his weaving passage south through Alphon, has brought him here, and now he feels he's finished running. He has slipped into the city like a small pebble tossed into a pond, barely a ripple, the surface quickly smoothed over. He hadn't thought it would be like this. He had imagined that something would present itself to him, make it obvious what he should do next. The city itself would tell him, but the city seems to have entirely failed to notice him. It's no fun, but he supposes it might have its benefits. At least, he feels certain, nobody's looking for him anymore. And even if they were, nobody could find him in the maze of streets and alleys. He's completely wrong, of course, but still, he feels certain. So what next, he wonders. Here he is in a new place where nobody knows him and his shabby history. He has an opportunity, if he wants it, to reinvent himself completely. He could change his name. It's not like Benny is his real name. It's not like he chose it himself. He sits on his bench. He's come to think of it as his bench, overlooking the river and ponders. What name would he give himself from all the names in Athlon? What would he do with his life, of all the things one can do with a life? And for a while there, he allows himself to drift away somewhere. It changes each time, crafting beautiful wooden trinkets in a cabin in a clearing in the woods, taking them to sell at market, or bringing in his nets full of fish on a crystal blue lake, that kind of thing, something clean and simple. Though he knows it's ludicrous, he's a city dweller and always has been. He wouldn't have had to survive in the countryside. And while he waits for a plan to present itself to him, his stomach is still rumbling and he's sleeping on a floor surrounded by vermin, so he thinks he should probably do something practical in the interim. Anyway, he reflects, these dreams are probably folly. He is who he is, and he's done the things he's done. So he tries to focus on the practicalities, reflecting that it's a great deal easier to start fresh, with a few gold in your purse, and a hot meal in your belly. So these dreams of a clean and simple way to make a living are going to have to remain dreams for now.
He picks himself up from his bench and continues his new game. Except this time, when he bows courteously to a gentleman in fine clothes and the gentleman looks directly through him, as if through a pane of glass. He doesn't just add to his mental tally. This time, he doubles back, follows the gentleman, and once he gets to a more crowded area, he relieves him of his pocket watch. Then he smiles. This is a very satisfying way to select marks. And within a day, Benny has moved up in the world. Sure, it's a damp room, above a bar, in a particularly shabby part of town, but to Benny, it feels like absolute luxury. Certainly beats a dilapidated warehouse that creaks alarmingly whenever the wind blows, and the company of red-eyed rats. He's even managed to scare up a bowl of water, and washed his mud-splattered, weeks-worn clothes, and even his greasy hair and face. So it's a sanguine Benny, who walks to his riverfront bench the next day, holding a bowl of stew and a chunk of crusty bread. He's slightly taken aback to find that the bench has an occupant, a sickly-looking man, with a cloak pulled tight around his shoulders, and some sort of mask covering half of his face. But, unperturbed, it is, after all, his bench, Benny takes a seat, as far away from the stranger as it's possible to be while sharing the planks of wood. He starts to eat. Is that soup? Rasps the stranger. Well, stew, replies Benny. So, near enough, I suppose. Not near enough at all, replies the man, and settles into what feels like a disagreeable silence. However, he breaks it again a few moments later by asking, Are you going to be long? Beg pardon? I said, are you going to be long? Well, what is it to you? Could be nothing to me, could be everything, replies the man. One never knows, does one? All right, if one says so, replies Benny, and shoves a piece of bread into his mouth. The man flashes a grin at Benny, and he catches sight of a mouth half empty of teeth and behind the mask, a gap where one eye should be. It almost puts Benny off his meal. However, it does take an awful lot to put Benny off eating. He continues to chew, gazing out intently across the river. Glorious sight, isn't it? Says the stranger. A boating man yourself? Never been on a boat in my life, replies Benny. I like dry land beneath my feet. I take it you are, then. A boating man, that is. In a manner of speaking, replies the man. Benny waits for the man to expand on this, but after a moment realises no elaboration is coming. At this point he's finished his stew, and the peculiar stranger has spoiled his enjoyment of his favourite bench, to the point that he feels he may as well leave. He has enough silver in his purse for an ale or two at the nearest tavern. There might even be someone normal there to talk to. He stands up and stretches, taking in one last look at the river before turning to go. Farewell then, friend, says the stranger. Hopefully we'll meet again soon. Fingers crossed, says Benny. Then, and what he knows immediately is a foolish impulse. After all, if nothing else, the man has acknowledged Benny, and therefore, according to the rules of the game, should not be selected. He walks behind the bench and past the man, and as he does so, he places his left hand on the man's shoulder and says, Farewell. While this is happening, his right hand dips into the fold of the stranger's cloak and collects a small coin purse, unlooping it from the fabric hook from which it hangs. Nothing has moved. The folds of the man's cloak are entirely unruffled by the manoeuvre. The weight and balance of the cloak somehow remain the same. Benny removes his hand from the man's shoulder and walks away without looking back. He walks in the opposite direction to the river. His steps are purposeful, but never hurried. He's just a man walking along a road, that's all. You don't hurry. You certainly don't run away. About 50 yards past the bench, 
Then he spots someone else. Another man, this one tall and well-built, wearing dark clothes and leaning against a wall. As Benny approaches, he surveys the man and gets a sense that he is on edge. The man looks rumpled, unshaven, bags under his eyes. But he has an air about him. Military, perhaps? However, he's wearing civilian clothes, a black cloak with its hem muddied. You there, says the leading man. Me here, responds Benny. Who else would I mean, snaps the man. That man on the bench there, is he wearing a sort of half-mask thing? Come on, answer man, it's a simple question. Benny pauses. The man awaits his answer, entirely unaware that he couldn't have chosen a more perfect way of addressing Benny if he wanted to make absolutely sure that Benny would be as unhelpful as possible. What are you on about? asks Benny. It's just some bloke with a normal face, beard, glasses, that sort of thing. The man looks at him for a moment appraisingly. Very well, he says at last. That'll be all. And he flicks a copper at Benny, which Benny instantly takes as an affront to his dignity. He dexterously catches the coin between a finger and thumb, and without thinking, hurls it back at the man's chest. Surprised, the man puts up his arm instinctively to block the incoming projectile, and as he does so, Benny sees a flash of steel and glimpses a long dagger concealed up the man's sleeve. Benny, his instinct for self-preservation always to the fore, scuttles off around a corner before the man can get any ideas which might combine Benny and the blade he just spotted. Benny steps through the door of the tavern in a cheerful mood. If you thought about it, the man in the strange mask would have happily parted with the contents of his coin purse in order to avoid an encounter with the man with the wicked blade. He would have been grateful to Benny for his service. So, if you thought about it a bit more, Benny's gains aren't ill-gotten, but an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. And the beer he is about to drink will be extra tasty because it will be purchased using money earned honestly righteously even. He steps up to the bar and calls for an ale. From his right, he hears a familiar voice. Ah, fancy meeting you again. He turns to the speaker. The man in the half-mask is leaning heavily on the bar, as if using it to stay upright. But the part of his mouth that Benny can see appears to be smiling in a display of happiness, or perhaps mirth, that appears to be genuine, if ghastly. In front of him is a small glass of an opaque green liquid. Creme de menthe, says the man, spotting where Benny's glance has moved to. Not familiar with it, perhaps. A gnomish delicacy. Can't get it many places here in Lunadine. An acquired taste. But once you've acquired it, well... He lets the sentence trail off. But seeing that Benny is somewhat stunned and not looking like he's about to contribute to the conversation, he continues... I was just explaining to the barkeep here that I appear to have lost my purse, but that I was meeting a friend who would be only too happy to pay. As if on cue, the barkeeper plonks down a pitcher of ale in front of Benny and holds his hand out for coin. Benny rummages in his pockets and produces what he assumes will be enough for his and the stranger's drinks, but the hand remains extended. I told him you would be delighted to buy a drink. For him also, adds the stranger, and Benny, sighing and defeated, adds another couple of coins to the small pile that is forming in the barkeeper's hand. Good, good, 
exclaims the stranger. Now, I don't enjoy standing for too long. And with this, he taps his cane on the dusty wooden floor. So may I suggest we retire to a couple of chairs and get acquainted properly? They settle into chairs at a table by the window. The stranger eases himself carefully into his seat, while Benny slumps heavily. He has the same sensation he remembers from childhood, of the times, multiple times, when he thought he had engineered the perfect escape from the orphanage, only to find the governor standing at the gates, with a belt in his hand and a benevolent expression on his face. And the worst of it, Benny knows, is his hubris, his self-satisfaction before the realisation that it had all fallen apart. It was the same each time at the orphanage, the same when he had to leave Middleton, and the same now. The man is obviously determined to have some fun with him before handing him over to the bounders, and there's nothing he can do but sit here and take it. What is your name, friend? Asks the man. Leith. Benny responds with the first name that comes to mind. Leith what? Just Leith is fine. The man looks at him evenly for a moment. Fair enough, if you say so. My name is Van der Finnick. A pleasure to make your acquaintance properly. Likewise, I suppose. You must forgive me for startling you at the bar there. I have rather a flair for the dramatic, and sometimes I'm afraid I simply can't help myself. Oh, no, don't mention it, mumbles Benny. Although, of course, I will be needing my coin purse back. I trust you haven't had time for a spending spree since we met. An arm appears from beneath the heavy cloak that Vanda wears, even in this spring-like weather and Benny sees a gnarled hand, ribboned with scar tissue. He reluctantly places the coin purse in the upturned palm. Try not to be disheartened, says Vander. You are extremely skillful. Impressive even, honestly. It's just, not much gets past me, I'm afraid. So, when did you realise? asks Benny, unable to help himself. Oh, when you placed your hand on my shoulder, I realised what you are up to. People tend not to initiate physical contact with me, you see. But the point is, dear Leaf, that virtually nobody else would have realised what you were up to. That is why we are sitting here now, having this pleasant conversation. Vanda beams at Benny. So, what do you say then, Leaf? How do you fancy earning that coin purse back and more on top? by making use of those light fingers of yours. I'm assuming you are as light-footed as you are light-fingered, by the way. Benny looks at Vander, surprised. He hadn't anticipated this turn in the conversation at all, and doesn't feel like he has a sense of the man. Vander has wrong-footed him from the second they met, and he's not sure how to play it. Is Vander asking or telling? There is an item in a warehouse that I would like to see liberated. Vander continues. Nothing too heavily guarded, straightforward enough for someone of your capabilities, I shouldn't wonder. The thing is, Benny replies carefully, I'm not really looking for employment at the moment. I've discovered recently that actually I'm much better as my own boss than I am working for someone. Nonsense, replies Vander. I think of it as a partnership. We do the work... I take the part that aligns with my skills, you take the part that aligns with yours, and afterwards, 
we are free to go entirely our separate ways, should we choose. Benny takes a deep breath and looks out of the window to the street beyond. A gentle rain has started to fall since they arrived, and people are hurrying by with their heads down, keen to get to their destinations. He senses, rather than sees, Vanda lean in across the table. I would, however, recommend accepting my offer. Benny's head snaps back towards Vanda. Is that right? he asks, with a note of challenge in his voice. Vanda raises his hands in a conciliatory gesture. Please, don't take my meaning incorrectly. I did not intend for that to come across as a threat. I simply meant... And with that, he leans in close again and lowers his voice. I simply meant that, and don't look up, but there is a man and a woman lingering by each of the doors. They both arrived shortly after you and have barely touched their drinks. They each look rather imposing and they're not skilled enough to avoid making it obvious who they are interested in, I'm afraid. Now, all I meant a moment ago was that if we are partners, well, then it is in my interest to help you avoid any unpleasantness with these individuals. And if we are not partners... Vanda shrugs, sadly. Well, then it's none of my concern, is it? Benny takes a sip of his ale and glances around the room with a casual air, not allowing his gaze to linger on the people Vanda has pointed out, but nonetheless gathering all the information he needs. Friends of yours? asks Vanda. I've never seen him before in my life, replies Benny, being completely honest for the first time in the conversation. Well, they seem to know you. Benny again feels like slapping himself about the head. He can't believe he has allowed himself to become so complacent, to believe he was free and clear from the Tam races. He's barely checked behind him in days, hasn't altered his patterns of coming and going, has told people in taverns and shops his real name, which, of course, has led to these muscular individuals blocking the doorway, while this masked creature opposite leers at him. Buying a bit of time to think, he says, there's money in this partnership, you say? Of course, replies Vanda brightly. I said so, didn't I? I wouldn't ask you to work for free. And, uh... How are you planning on handling these two? Oh, no need to worry about that. I find when dealing with an adversary, it's all about getting into their heads, if you know what I mean. Benny doesn't know what Vanda means, but at least the man seems confident. Maybe he can get them away from the Tamray goons. And besides, he doesn't see anyone else offering to help. It's even possible that there is a bit of money in this job, though frankly he doubts it. He accepts that he hasn't quite got the measure of Vanda yet, but he's been promised easy money enough times not to entirely trust him to come through with the cash. Still, it's not impossible, and if he manages to scrape a bit of money together, he'll be able to afford a crossing on a boat to Royaume Dion. Now that really should be far away enough from the Tamrace family. And besides, he's heard good things about the place. Better weather, for one. Decent food. Yeah, thinks Benny. Maybe that should be the plan. After all... He's been thinking for a while now that he could really use a fresh start.